there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about building a career in technology, in innovation, and social impact, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has been working at the intersection of those fields and approaches for almost two decades. But before I introduce you to Joshua Haynes, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive peek into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to do, my friends. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four coffee, and all those words are smushed together, dot org. Time, the number four coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Joshua Haynes, the founder and managing partner at Masawa, a social impact fund that invests for financial and social returns in people and organizations innovatively making mental wellness matter. Joshua has his own long story with mental illness recovery, which I am sure we're going to be getting into, but our hope here is to provide comfort and inspiration to so many listeners out there who are struggling to manage their anxieties and fears due to a whole bunch of reasons, not the least of which is the coronavirus pandemic. Over the last almost 20 years, Joshua has worked for both the U.S. and Swedish governments, managing a portfolio of a combined $190 million in innovative grant funding in emerging and frontier market countries that are targeting poverty alleviation, civil society, human rights, and technology. He also has experience leading the design and implementation of digital products and services for large enterprises in Europe and the U.S., and a Among his many, many gifts, Joshua also speaks seven languages. Joshua, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Have you? I want to let our listeners know, Joshua speaks seven, I speak three, two, you know, mama hoo hoo, as we would say in Chinese, but, but Joshua also speaks Mandarin, in case you're wondering. So it is such a pleasure to have you. You are joining us from your home in Berlin. And as we discussed in our Espresso Shots episode, and please check out show notes to see if that has already dropped. That's where we get into how to break into social impact and technology. Joshua is living right now. It's the middle of April, but he and his husband and their two children are living in Berlin. And the coronavirus is not nearly as, shall we say, a disorganized um response in Germany as it is here mm-hmm. in the United States. It is not a cluster fabric like yeah. it is in other places. And so we're very lucky to be here in Berlin where resources are coordinated, tests are ample, and the healthcare system really isn't being taxed at all. 
that's fantastic. And I know there haven't been a fraction of the mortalities in Germany as there right. have been here in the US. I think you can almost count. I don't even know if there are three zeros. Uh, but they're but now three zero. We'll have to double check that. I'm not sure on today's numbers. Well, it is a very challenging time all around the world. And it's one of the many reasons that I wanted to interview you, Joshua, and that I hope to tap into your expertise and the knowledge that you have about mental wellness. Masawa is a social impact fund. You started it in 2019. Could you please explain to our young listeners what a social impact fund is, what social impact investing is, and why you wanted to focus your fund on the people and organizations who are making mental wellness matter in innovative ways. Mm -hmm. Thank you also for the opportunity to be here from you and learn from you as well as from all of the listeners. We're all in a community together. So social impact investing is akin to startup investing, venture investing, where we provide financial capital, money, check or deposit to individuals and organizations, in our case, focused on helping billions of people become more mentally well. What's different of an impact fund versus a traditional venture fund is that in addition to the financial impact that we want to see our investments have, there's a social impact we require our impact funds to have. So unless the predefined social impact targets are met, any financial gain is not fully realized. This is important because you hear a lot about a lot of the big companies, these unicorn companies that are valued at over a billion US dollars. And so many people, young people alike, who are starting up have these hopes and dreams of becoming rich overnight because they've started the next Facebook or Uber. What social impact investing hopes to do is to not just focus on the growth, the tremendous growth or the valuation or the exits, having a company buy you, the get rich quick scheme. It really puts in a process to ensure that the work that you're doing has an impact and improves society. The reason why I decided to start Masawa was after I came to terms with the mental illness that I had been living with for, at that point, 35 years, when I started to look around at the numbers, at the fact that depression is the number one cause of disability worldwide, and that 20% of American adults have some type of mental illness, I was really shocked that there wasn't much investment going into the huge numbers of innovations that are coming out of whether it be Silicon Valley or the Midwest or here in Europe where I live now. Innovations in the areas of, like we'll talk about in a bit, nutrition, mindfulness, even psychedelics. There really was this lack of investment vehicles. Also, not to even mention the lack of focus on measuring the social impacts these funds are wanting to have. So I decided to combine a lot of the different things that I had worked on in my life, whether it be technology, product design, working with marginalized communities around the world, finance, microfinance, and come together and create this fund to help invest and really catalyze all of those amazing innovators to helping us as humanity recover, not only from COVID-19, but all of the other issues that we were dealing with before this pandemic arrived on our doorstep. Fantastic. And I'm so glad that you brought out the difference between social impact and venture funding. How is it different from straight out philanthropy? So philanthropy usually is in the form of 
grants. So we're a philanthropist or maybe a foundation will provide funds to a nonprofit or for-profit for a specific topic or for the organization without any expectation of a financial return and sometimes also no expectation of a social return. Each foundation has their own or philanthropy has their own different measurements. So we are using the power of capital of actually investing in a company. Sometimes we're taking a portion of the company, whether it be in equity, like owning stocks in the company, or sometimes we do it in a way that's like we give them a loan and then they repay it back over time, depending on what's needed. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And we are going to, I mean, there was so much that you that you had in your initial answer there. We're going to be teasing out a lot of this over the course of the interview. At this point, I just want to focus on the social impact piece before we get into your personal story. Joshua, could you give us an example or two? And I know that Misawa is a new organization, but could you give Mm -hmm. us an example or two of organizations or people that you may have already invested in and give us a sense of what they're doing? So some examples are, and we're still in the final processes of making our first investments, but some of the organizations are creating an anonymous digital platform for use in areas where you really can't talk about mental illness, whether it be Africa or India or South America. Another group is looking at the power of exercise and community to come together to help people both interact with one another, yes, difficult in these times, but to have a bit more fun in their daily movements and exercises. And that's actually a really good point. How much due diligence is involved? And what do you do to vet different organizations that you're looking to invest in? So we have a a responsibility to really be stewards of the funds that our investors provide to us. And we've developed a three-part strategy on ensuring that our funds will be used to the best extent possible. That includes the traditional venture vetting of the business and the economic situation. What is the product that this organization is actually doing? Do the economics make sense? Will they be able to, over time, eventually be able to become financially sustainable if they aren't already? And eventually pay back the debt or the loan or the equity, whatever instrument we use. That's the first part and pretty akin to traditional venture. The second part for us is doing the impact analysis. What is the ability for the organization to both put metrics in place and actually measure the impact that they're actually having on people? A lot of times organizations aren't familiar with building out these kind of impact models like they are with building out the financial models. So we help them and work with them to be able to build out those impact models. That can be, for example, that X number of percentage of increase of people feel that they've had better days so that they can actually return to work or that they would suggest these companies or these products to other people the net promoter score. And then the third part of the diligence is really about the individuals who are running these organizations. What's their resiliency to be able to usher an organization through the hard times and also create an environment that itself is mentally well? Because most of the time, I'm thinking about my organization where I work. I'm sure you are too, Andrea. Most of us are focused on our school or our jobs. And so that has a really big effect on mental wellness. And if the founders that we invest in and their organizations aren't mentally well, they won't be able to have the effect, the impact that's so needed for so many people. Oh my gosh, that is such a sophisticated 
approach to trying to build these different platforms to help people with their mental wellness. The idea, of course, that the people who are running these organizations (laughs) better themselves be in the right frame of mind, be taking care of themselves in addition to creating a healthy environment for their team members. Yes. Too often we forget about that. We just look at the numbers. It's just about the number of followers that somebody might have or an organization might have or the value of their stock or whatever that might be. But we forget that at the end of the day, it's all about the individuals and the people. A hundred percent. Does it take a lot of money to be an impact investor? And how have you, how are you building your own fund? So a lot of money, what does that mean? I think it definitely does take enough money to be able to keep the lights on closing. Usually with investment funds, whether they be impact or not impact, there are management fees that go along with them. Sometimes that's 2%, sometimes that's 3 or 4%, depending on the arrangement. And so if you think about a fund, for example, of maybe just $10 million, well, 2% of $10 million is 200000 Would you be able to pay everything that you need to be able to pay all your salaries, all your rent, expenses, travel. So bigger funds are certainly better equipped to be able to have the whole slew of people that are needed to be efficient. But it's also harder, though, to raise those funds initially. What we're doing is we're actively fundraising currently and really looking at targeting lots of different types of investors, whether they be foundations, philanthropists actually are getting more into the social impact investing realm, high net worth individuals, friends of ours who have grandmas or grandpas, maybe, that have some extra cash hanging around. And using all of that to the basis to really start the process of completing the entire life cycle of an investment. Because these investments are usually seven to 10 years, at least what we're targeting. And at least in the industry, it's called the ticket side, the amount of money. It ranges between $50,000 and $50,000 or euros to a million. And so that is a solid chunk of change. Now, I definitely come by any of myself, but have been able to build this bare bones to the extent possible and also have support from friends and family. Fantastic. So if I understand you correctly, Joshua, you said the average investment looking for into Masawa is between 50000 and a million? Right. So the actual investment that we make into other organizations. So say you're a startup who's trying to come up with a new way of providing digital therapy for youth, because we know that 50% of mental illness actually happens to us before we're 14. So this is an example. So we would invest in a range of 50k to uh, a million in these organizations, depending on what they need, etc. Now, the amount of money that we're looking, that we're raising, is between 200,000, all the way upwards of 10 million. Got it. Okay, thank you so much for clarifying. Could you give us an overview of what Masawa invests in? I know broadly it's nutrition, it's natural approaches, and then workplace wellness, as you were alluding to the idea that the person who's running (laughs) the organization would be mentally well, and also creating an environment that would be a healthy one. Yes. So we're looking at maybe non-traditional approaches to mental wellness. So a lot of times when we think about mental health, we think about therapy and we think about pharmaceutical approaches, antidepressants, for example. But there are so many lists, a long list of different approaches that have been scientifically proven where there's a nice corpus of evidence that these different approaches work. And so we're looking at both digital and non-digital approaches, whether it be in exactly nutrition. 
for example, there's so much work around the power of not eating sugar and processed foods. That in and of itself, and I have a personal experience with that, has so much effect on our clarity of life and clarity of mind. And so there's a lot of products out there that are being developed and there's a lot of innovation. There's also a lot in terms of mindfulness with yoga. Psychedelics is a quite controversial yet proven. There are a number of clinical trials that are approved currently by the FDA and also by the European equivalent. And that's an area of work that's growing exponentially. And then, of course, the third being the workplace. Exactly. Workplace wellness. So there are a lot of programs for people who work in Silicon Valley organizations like Google or Facebook, where they, through their HR, their human resources department, they're able to kind of key in or get assistance with their mental well-being is needed. But we see that there's so many people, most of the world doesn't work in those types of organizations, those white-collar organizations. And so we're looking at organizations who can bring workplace wellness to the masses and affect all kinds of people, whether they be blue-collar, local professionals, researchers, etc. How has the coronavirus affected your ability at Masawa to carry out your mission? So I'll be honest with you, Andrea. Initially, the first couple of days after it set in that this is going to be something, it's not just a blip, I was worried because I saw the financial markets crumbling. You know, you see lots of people losing their jobs and was really worried if we could even make it through. But then I started getting emails and calls from people saying, hey, do you know of anybody who I can reach out to for counseling or therapy? Do you know of investors or investors coming? Hey, do you want to co-invest with me on these various opportunities? And I really saw that, unfortunately, COVID-19 might be a blessing in disguise. More people are now affected by the anxiety that is this pandemic, and there will be sustained trauma, PTSD afterwards, whether you lose someone, you lost your job, and that might even that trauma might be intergenerational. So we really feel that we're going to be able to talk a little bit more freely about mental illness and have the hard discussions around what it is and not stigmatize it so much. I think we're still pretty early in terms of the financial effects. We have still good indications from our investors and our investees that money is needed so much. A lot of our potential investees have seen huge growth and the number of clients who need their services. Oh, I am so not surprised to hear that. Another resource is a platform that we've thrown together quickly in light of this current pandemic. It's called Misawa Match. That's Misawa Match, M-A-S-A-W-A-N-A-T-C-H dot org. It allows people to search for service providers, whether they be therapists or coaches, and have one-on-one Uh, chats to arrange service provision off of the platform. Fantastic. And is that something that would be a pay-per-service type of situation? Would there be any opportunity to get discounts or is that between the patient and the provider? It's entirely between the patient and the provider, but there are a lot of resources already that are free resources for, for dealing with these these issues. A lot of it is around employer and in employee aspects. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Before we get into more of your own struggles with mental illness, I thought I would just share a little bit of data. And then this is pre-coronavirus, and it's from the Masawa website, because you've got some shocking data points pre-coronavirus. Mm-hmm. That said, mental illness, including depression, anxiety, addiction, substance 
addiction, PTSD, and eating disorders is the leading cause of disability worldwide. And in the EU alone, in the European Union alone, mental illness costs an estimated 4% of GDP. So that's over 600 billion euros annually and affects 17% of adults. The estimated global cost of mental illness by 2030, so just 10 years from now, is going to be $6 trillion. Where do those figures come from? And I just can't even imagine how those figures are going to change as the coronavirus pandemic continues. Absolutely. Most of those figures are from the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development, and the World Health Organization. And those numbers, even then, were on the conservative side. So we see after Corona, the numbers will be even larger. It is scary how much of a silence of a mental illness was and is, and hopefully will no longer continue to be. And just that if we're not facing mental illness ourselves, we most certainly know someone or are caring for someone who is. What advice can you offer any of our young listeners, Joshua, who are struggling right now? And I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to recognize why you have Mm -hmm. thousands upon thousands of college students who are grappling with immense anxiety and depression, among Mm -hmm. other things, due to the coronavirus's impact on colleges and universities, Mm -hmm. that's specifically on colleges and universities, and then on the economy more broadly. They've been forced, if they have the opportunity to move back home with their parents, or they are Mm -hmm. hunkered down in apartments or rooms that they're sharing with friends, trying to do their classes online. And then you have so many who are graduating in in May and June. It is scary. It is the scariest time for this graduating class specifically, but also for those who are either even looking to go to university or community college. So the span is quite great on youth and young people. So I think the first thing is a bit of kind of future looking. So imagine in five or 10 years, this will all be over. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard on a number of us and a number of us and a number of our friends and family. But we're going to get through this because we as humans always do, we always have, and we always will. I think it's important to be able to look inside and identify what you're actually feeling. Not do what I did for so many years and use my brain to tell me what I was feeling, but to say, oh, wait, that's anxiety. I don't really feel good. I feel nervous about something that I can't control. Or I don't feel like getting out of bed today because of the gloom and doom that's around me. Acknowledging that feeling, feel okay with it, that it will change. Seeking out your friends, your family, mentors, others to help you through this is super crucial, especially for people who are having additional fits and instances of anxiety. For those of you who meditate, important to continuing the meditation practice. I really wish I had started meditating before I was 35. It would have helped a lot. For those of you who don't, try it out, but it's not for everyone, and that's okay too. But just being present, being in the here and now is so crucial, and not just letting your brain ruminate so that monkey talk of how bad you are, how bad things are, how you can't do anything right, because it's all not true. It's all our inner beings telling us that we're not worth it, or we can't really make it. Well, think about how far you've gotten and what you've already been able to overcome in the various situations. 
I think it's crucial that we look at social media and you catch yourself when you're just scrolling through your Instagram or your TikTok and realize that those depictions are of people's perfect lives. That's not the real life that they live. Think about what you put for the most part on Instagram or TikTok or whatever service you use. You want to be able to put something nice out so you get a, the dopamine fix of the likes and the forwards. But realize and have a frank discussion with yourself of the utility. Does it make sense that you spend so much time lost in the tunnel vision of the social media? How is it getting you towards achieving that next goal? Whether it be trying to find the internship or the job that probably fell through because of this pandemic, or with just getting through April and May, the times we are now, and just being able to graduate. If you don't have an A across the board or the top marks, you're still going to be able to come through okay. So take care of yourselves. Are there any resources online, Joshua, that we could direct our young listeners to? I know that there are things like suicide hotlines and whatnot, but Mm -hmm. what about for, I know, actually, I'm about to answer part of it, but certainly for meditation, there are apps like Headspace, and you Mm -hmm. can Google those free apps. Mm -hmm. But what about for other mental wellness services? Yeah, so there are crisis lines. There are, I think, a simple Google search for a number of these different things around, well, what should I really be eating? Just no sugar and no processed food is my mantra. There's a lot of resources on lots of diets and recipes on what you can be eating to really help your mental state. Absolutely. We've somewhat danced around this, but there is a 100% connection between what you put in your body and how your brain is functioning. So, you know, after you've eaten a lot of pasta, if you've eaten a heavy Italian meal, mm-hmm. people talk about mm-hmm. feeling tired and sluggish. They just want to take a nap. Okay. Exactly. Well, there are other side effects of putting that into your body. I mean, it affects your skin, it affects your joints, it affects your energy. Yes. And it affects. So we should both say we're not mental health experts, but right, there are experts out there. And I will make sure that we include some links in show notes. But we're just here to open your eyes and to make you aware of this, because certainly when you were a kid, Jonathan, you had no idea what was going on. And perhaps this is a good time for us to talk about how you struggled as a teenager and why you struggled as a teenager and why this is something that hits so close to home. Yeah, certainly. Thank you. So growing up, I was raised by a single mother on welfare and moved around a lot because a lot of times we couldn't pay the bills. My older siblings were able to help out where they could. Sometimes it was great. Sometimes it wasn't enough. I went to seven different high schools in three years, for example. And I found that Oftentimes, my own friend and my best friend was cakes and cookies and Coke and other sugary beverages. And so when I really needed someone or something to console me, I turned to food. Most of my life, even since seventh grade, I weighed 300 pounds or more and never really put the connection together. I was successful. I was lucky to be pretty good academically. I got some scholarships to college. I figured out I could learn languages well, and so spent a number of years living in different places, learning languages, and every time really rediscovering myself. And some could say that I was really escaping. 
And it wasn't really until I hit rock bottom after having been a diplomat in the Obama administration, having worked in over 35 countries, doing some pretty, pretty innovative and cool things, that I came to terms with the fact that I had been suffering with illness for all these years, given my childhood and all the changes and stressors that I experienced. And even though I had ups and downs with nutrition, it really didn't hit home until I finally was so big and so unhappy with myself that I was desperate. And I said, fine, I'm not doing any sugar. And for me at that point, no carbs. And after two weeks, Andrea, I tell you, I was a completely different person. The haze, that constant search for the next cookie, the next muffin, didn't matter. It wasn't there. I wasn't trying to plot and ploy to figure out what else I could stuff in my mouth secretly in the corner, in the back. And that really was the trigger to make me think about what else in the areas around me could I improve to be even more mentally well. Wow. What a story. So what was it that opened your eyes and inspired you to give up the sugar and the processed food? At that point, I had had a colleague who was studying health coach, and we were talking about different diets. And I had heard of, I had actually tried some diets, the paleo diet, Richard Atkins, I had tried some things, and it didn't ever really, really stick. And so I said, I think I was at such a low point where I had also tried so many things. I had been in therapy at that point for a while, and that helped in a lot of areas, but I was still missing something. I had been on antidepressants for a long time. That helped a little bit, but we still searching for something else. And when I finally made the click, um, yeah, it was just unavoidable. I could not acknowledge the connection that there was between the food and just all of that caloric intake and carbohydrate intake and my mental well-being. Are you familiar with Dave Asprey? I am. I am very familiar with Dave Asprey. Okay. For our yes. young listeners who may not be familiar with Dave, he is a former coder computer science geek who has a somewhat similar story in that he also weighed several hundred pounds. Dave is extremely well-known now. He's written a number of books. His company is called Bulletproof, and mm -hmm. he ended up trying, as Joshua did, all kinds of diets. He felt, what's wrong with me? I don't have discipline, self-control. And wasn't able to lose weight even when he was sticking to the diet. And he ended up using the same approach that he did to coding to hacking mm -hmm. his own brain and hacking his own body to regain his health. And I highly, highly recommend him. You can listen to any number of his podcasts. I actually drink Bulletproof coffee and I put <laughs> the ghee, which is clarified butter and some MCT oil into my coffee. I don't know if you do that, Joshua. I do. Yes. Woohoo! All right. Because you're <laughs> putting good fat into your brain. Exactly. But... I too, I mean, I don't have, my story isn't quite as similar to yours, but I will say what resonates so much with me is the fact that I was embarrassed about the fact that I sought counseling. I went to see a therapist and I have this great story of one time being in my therapist's office and he came out because he had had a client in there before and he found me in the hallway sitting on a chair and gave me sort of a strange look. 
And we went into his office, closed the door, and he said, why were you in the hallway? There are all these chairs in the little ante room there. And I said, well, there were other people in there. <laughs> and he said, yeah. And I said, but they might recognize me. Because at that point, I think I had just left CNN, so I was had more of a profile. And he said, well, what are you embarrassed about? And I said, well, the fact that I'm getting therapy. And he said, don't you realize you're one of the lucky ones? Right. That is an understatement. And it still took me a while to talk about it more freely with friends. And certainly now I talk about it on the podcast because there is or should be no shame in the fact that we all have our struggles. And I've struggled with depression and anxiety and in fact, went off my medications, I guess about almost two years ago, Joshua. And then mm -hmm. the depression came back, even though my diet was very clean. And so I'm back on Wellbutrin and another medication. Oh, yeah, sometimes but you need that extra help. I mean, it's yes. very insidious when yes. the depression starts seeping in. And for me, one day I just couldn't stop crying. I was crying mm. and crying and crying and just feeling hopeless, which is why yes. I totally relate to the fact that this is a real disease. This is a real yes. illness that we struggle mm -hmm. with. And I'm sure there are many in our listening audience now who have this feeling and there's nothing wrong with you. You need Absolutely. to get help. You need to get medication if that's an intervention that will work and couple that with the good eating and with the exercise and with the meditation or other ways of centering yourself because it's a multifaceted approach. Absolutely. And that's really the best way to attack it. So one of the many, many things that I love about your story and your professional journey, Joshua, is that looking in the rearview mirror at the ripe old age of, what are you, 39 now? I'm 40. You're I not. love it. Oh, my gosh. Welcome to a new yeah. decade. Well, I'm 56. That's amazing. So you're still a very young guy. Wow. And <laughs> one of the many things that I love about your professional journey, Joshua, is that the dots really do connect. Mm. And I want to <laughs> flash back to when you were in college. You went to Boston University and you majored in business administration, international finance, and quantitative methods. Was that one major? Was it a concentration? And I have no idea what quantitative methods is. I've never heard of that as a major. <laughs> I just know that you're, you're really good with numbers. Uh, or maybe Excel. Well, I guess maybe that's the same thing. Um, <laughs> my undergraduate major was in business administration and with a concentration in international finance and quantitative methods, which is data analytics. And so I don't know why I chose that. Maybe I do because I, I liked numbers and I liked um, the thought of finance, but I never wanted to practice it because I, I just felt it was dirty. It was just all about the money. It wasn't about the change that could be made. So actually, my first job out of college was working at a nonprofit as an exchange organization to help young people study abroad. Let me ask you about yeah. that in just one minute yeah. because I'm curious, did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated in 2002? <laughs> Heck no. I had no idea. I don't know if I was just my head in the clouds 
I'm not sure where I really was at that point, but I knew I wanted to do something international and I really appreciated the experience I had had at that point living in different countries. At that point, I had lived in Germany and Ecuador and uh, wanted to work in that area. It wasn't important for me to follow that escalator up the career ladder like a lot of my friends were doing who were going into investment banking programs or were going into consultancy, apprenticeships, etc. So you got that job at the Council on International Educational Exchange where you were hired. Was it as an intern or as a program assistant? I was a program assistant. And how did you get the job? So one of my professors at Boston University's wife worked at this nonprofit organization. And he knew that I was interested in international affairs. And so he introduced me to her. And then I was able to get a job. And you spent about a year there. And I guess while you were there, you decided to go into the Peace Corps. And you were accepted to go to Morocco. And when you were in Morocco, how did you get into doing small business development? Right. So that was the topic area that I had signed up for because I had, at least that point, thought I knew about business. I didn't know then. I knew nothing about business. It didn't matter that I had had studied it for four years and worked with small businesses in Morocco, in rural Morocco, including weavers and actually cyber cafes. Being a Peace Corps volunteer in Morocco over those two years was one of the most formidable experiences, certainly, of my career, if not my life. Because? Because even though I had grown up poor and kind of felt at that point that the world was against me, it really gave me perspective on what the true value of connection, community, and happiness could be. Living amongst people who probably had never met an American before, much less one that had learned their language, was super crucial in being able to also build my emotional, my empathetic ability for people and their situations. So are you saying that the communities that you worked with in Morocco, that even though they were incredibly poor, they were happy? Absolutely. Yeah. And I've seen this in a number of different countries. The happiest people are usually the poorest people. Because a lot of times people aren't worried about consumption or about buying things or or status or getting ahead. They're more concerned with family and connections and enjoying the moment. Your next couple of jobs after the Peace Corps were not in, I guess I could say, a mission-driven company per se. You worked as the director of analytics at CNJET, where you created complex computations to analyze clients' flying habits. And then you spent a year as a senior software consultant at a company called Knowledge Rules, where you led a team of 12 outsourced resources and you led them remotely and they were in Hyderabad, India. And that team successfully created three new software products. Why did you take those jobs? What were you looking to get out of those positions and those experiences? So I think I'd be doing the jobs a disservice if I were to wax poetic about how I wanted to build myself at that point. I think, honestly, after coming back from the Peace Corps, I needed a job. I had a roommate who worked at the private jet company. I was really good with Excel. They needed help. So I went and figured out how I could help them and really was able to get in and then build my position after building a little bit of credibility. It was 
through that position of really using the numbers and the data to understand buying habits of these clients that I appreciated the business process management aspects of going from point A to point B to point C, which is why I've joined this consultancy company, building out that business process management software. Got it. So would it be fair to say, Joshua, that you were just looking at having a job and making Primarily, yes. money? <laughs> I'm sure you had loans to repay and you were being practical because, I mean, the Peace Corps pays next to nothing. Exactly. Yes, that's entirely what it was. And you then went to graduate school at the Fletcher School and you got your master's in international business with a concentration in technology and social impact. And it was while you were at Tufts and after you finished your master's that you started doubling down on innovation and financial technology that's also known as fintech. In the field of development, and we're not talking about developing software, we're talking about working in third world or developing countries. Could you explain to our listeners what all of that means, what it means that you were doubling down on innovation and fintech and why you moved in that direction? So I saw the opportunity before going to grad school of working with technology, with the process and the applications of it were, but really felt that my heart wasn't being sung to, that I wasn't making a difference at all. And so this was around the start of the advent of the smartphone or mobile phones in general. And so through my travels and work in Africa and other parts of the world, saw how quickly people were using these tools and realized many people that these were potentially real tools for economic and democratic development. And so was fortunate to work with the U.S. Agency for International Development, as well as founding my own startup that eventually didn't work out, to look at the power of technology and how it brings us together with the hope for increased prosperity. Gotcha. I think it's a good point in our interview for us to talk about the zigs and zags. Was mm. any of this planned out on your part? Or would you say there was a North Star that was pulling you, Joshua? So nothing, none of this was planned. Nor could I ever imagine that I would be where I am today, back when getting my welfare check at age nine. And it's maybe because I didn't plan it, because I really let the tides take me. I think there was certainly one North Star of making an impact. And there are different winds that blew me in different directions, whether it was for the for-profit side, the data side, or working for the government and working with really marginalized populations around the world. Before I ask you the final two questions that I try to ask all time for coffee guests, I want you to share with our young listeners why on your LinkedIn profile you include the earliest jobs you had working at McDonald's. And you don't list it once. You list it three times. And so many of us, when we're building our LinkedIn profiles, only include, and you've certainly had some very prestigious, very interesting jobs at companies that would be impressive for anybody looking at your CV there. Why did you want to keep the McDonald's jobs there? I think it was part of my quest to always be as humble as possible, to realize that I came from someplace and I was given a deck of cards and I hopefully 
when it's all said and done, we'll have played those cards well. And to show that there's no shame whatsoever in having grown up disenfranchised or poor or having had to work at McDonald's to be able to pay for basic school supplies. It's actually a badge of honor because that humility will take you, and I've seen this not just in myself, but in so many people, that humility and that vulnerability that you can show will take you so much further than just having a cookie cutter approach to careers, profession, and progress. And I might say, Joshua, tell me if this resonates with you, but I think the fact that you grew up poor and living on welfare and having to really struggle has built so much grit, like hardwired into your body that something like the coronavirus, which is a huge curveball in everyone's life, is not going to throw you off your game. That you have so much determination that it has actually kind of prepared you for these challenges. Absolutely. And hearing it come from your mouth makes me want to do even more. So thank you. <laughs> oh. You know, and I'll be honest, Andrea, I don't think about the world like that. A lot of times I think it's just a matter of the way I work, that we're just going to figure it out. We always have and we always will. And so I think it's so important for people going through hard times now to realize that it's hard, but getting through this and being able to come out on the other side much better than you were before is so crucial for life in general. Yes. And it's why I wrote about the fact that I'm so grateful I was fired twice in my 40s because mm -hmm. they were gifts for so many reasons. So, so many reasons, mm. not the least of which the fact that I had to reinvent myself and keep reinventing myself has built so much grit into mm. my system that <laughs> I, I see it as I'm just so profoundly grateful that I went mm -hmm. through it. And it also pushed me closer to and helped me get to where I am today, which I'm so profoundly mm -hmm. grateful for. And I would say something else. Going through really difficult times should not be mutually exclusive from celebrating small victories. So celebrating, whether it's the fact that you meditated that day or the fact that mm -hmm. you didn't sugar and processed foods or the fact that you didn't <laughs> numb yourself with alcohol. These are all victories exactly. that you need to Absolutely. celebrate and love yourself for. Absolutely. In our house, we have the happy dance. So if the things we're working on, we were successful for that day, we do a little happy dance after dinner. And that really kind of solidifies it and sets it in. <laughs> I love it. I think you should put that on TikTok. <laughs> oh, Lord. I try yes. to ask all of my guests to share a time in their professional life when they really struggled. Maybe mm -hmm. they even failed at something as I have. But most importantly, how they persevered, how they got through that challenging time, and a lesson that they may have learned in the process. Yeah, absolutely. I, like yourself, was fired from a job, and it was my fault, although I didn't want to admit it at that point. It was really at the lowest part of my mental illness when things were just way over my head in terms of what I could do or what I was able to do. And I simply didn't perform. And that was a huge bruise on my ego because up to that point, I had been able to be charming and cunning and talk myself out of a paper bag at every stage. And it made me take a hard look at really where I'd come from, also where I wanted to go. 
I knew that what I had been doing up to that point to take care of myself needed to change and it needed to change drastically. And so I'm very grateful for having been fired and having really hit rock bottom. And it maybe was the, that actual dismissal that woke me up to say, listen, you got to do something different because it's not working out. And so this is another one of my seminal experiences of my career. Thank you so much for sharing that, Joshua. And it says so much about you that you, at such an early stage in your post-firing life, would share that. Because Thank it you. took many years more before I was brave enough to come forward and be honest with my friends, let alone with strangers, about what had mm. happened. And mm. I think that says a lot about how humble you are and how generous you are. Thank you. Final T4C question. If you could go back to Boston University and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Joshua, what advice would you give yourself? I would have done as many extracurricular activities as I did. I wouldn't have changed that for the world. Those were very important for my development. But in terms of the field of study, I would have taken a harder look at really where I wanted to explore. What intellectual curiosities did I possess? And maybe studied something completely different. Because as we spoke about previously in the espresso shots, check your show notes to see if those have dropped yet. It didn't really matter what I studied. It was really the process of learning how to study and how to communicate that was so important. And it wasn't so important, the actual thematic areas. Love it. Joshua, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. I hope you and Scott and your two children, Ren and Ellis, stay healthy, have lots of reasons for happy dances after dinner. And I want to say you are such a special human. I am just so appreciative to you that you agreed to do a Time for Coffee interview with me, not knowing me, <laughs> that you were willing to go on this journey with me. And I hope that your social impact work at Masawa continues to grow and thrive because it is so important now more than ever before. And thank you, Andrew, for the opportunity and to also ground myself a little bit. Sometimes we don't think about the importance of young people and all of you out there who are going through these hard times now. So just having this opportunity to chat with you really has changed some of my perspective of how I might achieve my work going forward. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.